Hi, my beautiful people. I just wanted to let you know about a book that's helped me save a lot of money. The book is called How to Buy in Today's Digital World, Tips for Those Who Want to Save a Buck. This book provides step-by-step -step tips on how to save money on your online purchases. It also instructs you on making smart financial decisions when buying groceries, booking flights and hotels, plus lots more. I hope you get a chance to get your copy. I think you'll love it, and I know you'll save some money. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up Podcast on the Nana Music Network. My guest is a blues man. By that, we mean he's a musician specializing in the music genre of the blues. So if you're a blues fan, we have a treat for you. My guest is one of the best known roots rock artists on the East Coast, which he will tell us what that means. Additionally, he is a pioneer of alternative blues, which he will also explain to us. Meanwhile, his music is played around the world, such as Paris, London, Barcelona, and all of the internet, to name just a few. And not surprisingly, his success has been recognized with an East Coast Rhythm and Blues Award, and he has been nominated for the Cami Award five times, and was also named as the best new artist in 2000. And these are serious recognitions in his field. Interestingly, instead of attending classes in high school, he was out rehearsing and playing with the likes of Steppenwolf and the Shirelles. Hey, if, if, that, uh, if you got what he takes and know what you want to do when you're 16 years old, more power to you. Such trails has led my guests to perform with the greats of music, including R.E.M., Paul Rogers, Greg Almond, Eric Burden, Levon Helm, John Mayo, and Bo Diddley, and much more. Even more amazing is that presently he's sitting on number one on the chart where he's categorized. But he's also very distinctive in that his worldview is not of the typical mindset, for his life is one of an expat, which means that his human existence is different from most people. And as a former expat myself, I can appreciate his cosmology. So we'll talk about that aspect of his life as well. With that, the Fry It Up podcast welcomes to the mic William Lierly, better known as Bill Lierly. How are you, Bill? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for being here. We got lots of grounds to cover, so let's hit the track running, all right? All right, let's go. All right. So as a musician, how did you survive the C-19 for the past year and a half? Well, I practiced a lot of guitar 
and I started <laughs> writing so this, you know, really seriously, about 600 hours in in the year. So many times that I had to go get two shots for tendonitis in my pointer finger on my left hand. It's called trigger finger tendonitis from playing guitar so much. And and I got back to writing songs. And one of those songs is the one that's uh, number one right now for the third week in a row on the Cash Bar Cashbox Beach Music Top 40 chart. What's and the name so of the song? I, well, uh, Juke Joint Jimmy's. Okay. And what when I wrote it, you know, I figured, okay, this this last year's been tough on everybody. So let's let's just go to a world, let's create an imaginary world where there's a, a rough little joint out in the middle of nowhere where people like to dance to a jukebox like they did in the fifties and the early sixties. And let's just create a story around that and just take people away, take them back to another era and, and, and give them a, give them something that they can dance to as well and, and, and have fun with. And <laughs> how that's, does a blues that's how it man, came about. Yeah, that's right. How does a blues man hook up with a, a beach music band and get number one hit? Well, the, the roots, um, the roots of beach music is blues. If you go back to 19, after World War II, uh, let's say 47, 48, 49, when people would go to uh, particularly uh, either North Myrtle Beach or to uh, Carolina Beach in North Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina, not in the areas not too far apart, um, these, these songs that these kids were liking they couldn't hear them on their hometown radio stations. They, they didn't play them. And so it was, it was blues and rhythm and blues. It was Big Joe Turner, uh, Laverne Baker, Jimmy Reed, artists like that. Big Joe Turner. Some of it was swing, what we know now as swing blues or swing jazz. And, and they, they loved it. They danced to it. But because there was no genre label for that um people would say well what kind of music is it and they said well i heard it at the beach so it must be beach music <laughs> and 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 that's how that whole title of, of that music came about and it later became known as pretty much anything that you could you could shag dance to um and it incorporated uh uh, up-tempo or jump blues, rhythm and blues, soul music, uh, that whole uh, became part of it. So what I do is leans more into the, the roots of, of beach music. Uh, other artists that have been successful with that, Delbert McClinton's been very, very successful with that, with the R&B sound that he has. Uh, even bands like... Um, the fabulous Thunderbirds will have things that will will cross into that. Um, Duke Robillard, uh, just it, it, you just never know. I mean, even Carlos Santana has had songs cross into that into that genre. So it's uh, it's basically all, all I'm doing is 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 taking uh, the music back to to the roots, you know, and and trying to to keep it simple, 
leave a rough edge on it because because you don't want to polish it's blues you don't want to polish it up you don't want to get it slick it's got to have a rough edge to it it's got to be real yeah so, so you know i love the music because we both have the same musical taste oh absolutely and we appreciated that performance that you did the other day uh down in uh smithfield, smithfield. North carolina <laughs> that was a lot of fun it sure was that was a lot of fun a lot of a lot of famous uh, founders of beach music there. Uh, so Absolutely. tell us what tell us what roots rock means. Roots rock is 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 roots music. I'm, what I do is roots rock because roots rock can be rockabilly. Uh, it can be uh, mm, rhythm and blues it can be blues but it's usually the things that come early on if you listen to buddy holly and the crickets that's roots rock and roll if you listen to little richard that's roots rock and roll that crosses into rhythm and blues you know those were the because uh the i think when i'm not sure the day the year when the coin, the, the term rock and roll was coined, but I know it was by the uh, uh, a DJ in Cleveland, which is why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland, Ohio. But it was it was just music. It, it wasn't until the seventies that things started getting categorized. Uh, you know, like okay, we're going to do this kind of music over here, and we're going to do this kind of music over here, and and to me that was. I saw that as a mistake because there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. <laughs> you know, let's, you know, I can remember, uh, uh, AM radio hearing, uh, uh, the Rolling Stones and then Buck Owens and the Buckaroos and then hearing the temptations, you know, one behind the other, because it was all good music. It was all popular and things hadn't become so categorized. Right. And and I think that's that's the way things were were more like that at the you know when uh, uh, beach music was was known as beach music because it was all all types of music uh, it just hadn't been as long as you could dance to it as long as they could shad to it um, it worked you know it was on the jukeboxes and they would put nickels in those jukeboxes. And imagine that, you know, five cents for for a play, you know, and, and I think a quarter would get you like six or seven plays. I don't know. I, I can kind of remember that's a long time. Um, but that's that's roots rock. And and uh, uh, we say we use the term alt as an alternative. A lot of times it's just a way to get away from what's popular now. Uh, like for instance, in country music, alternative country would be nothing but, but real country music as we know it, not the slicked up, uh, almost rock and roll stuff that's played on country music stations, but it would be, uh, Webb Pierce. It would be, uh, uh, Buck Owens. It would be, you know, Ray Price. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, Jim, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And that's the real stuff. But somehow that alternative got word got used or misused or whatever, but it kind of stuck um, for lack of saying real country or 
real blues or real, you know, it, it's just basically going back in time to the, a more pure form maybe of that music before it got quite so homogenized before it was uh, overproduced before it was slicked up, you know, when it was in a more rough raw stage. Oh yeah. I can which, appreciate anything that's pure with, you me know, too. diluted, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, well, and, and I think that's, oh, that's got uh, quite a bit to do with the success of, of juke joint jimmies. It's very pure. It's very simple. It's not slicked up. Um, they're hardly, I, I don't even think there are any overdubs in that. You know, it, it was just done in one or two takes. It's real. Yeah, pure you know? truth to form. Ex exactly. Exactly. And, and people hear that and somehow the, the, the realness of it will strike a chord in their soul or something. They feel, they feel the realness, the, you know, and, and, uh, I know I do, but I, but I think a lot of people do. I don't, I don't think I'm on my, my, obviously, uh, for it to do as well as done as people are enjoying it, which I'm very, very proud of and very happy about. Obviously. And, uh, go ahead well uh, the, the gentleman that, uh, on the record with me Derwood Martin and Tony Davis they, they both um, have been in the beach music uh, genre before it was even called beach music or, or at least in North Carolina I think the beach music thing probably was more of a an ocean drive North Myrtle Beach thing I didn't even, I was playing that music in high school and I didn't even hear the term beach music until in the seventies. Yeah. It doesn't mean, it certainly doesn't mean it wasn't around. It just means I hadn't heard it. And, 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 and I can remember hearing a story about Delbert McClinton, Delbert McClinton winning a beach music award and the microphone was on and as he walked up to accept the award, he turned around and said, what the heck is beach music? He, he didn't know. He was from Texas. He wasn't familiar with the term. Well, good know. music is but good music, right? It's good music. Exactly. If, if you can have fun, if you can dance to it, if it's good, that's the important thing. Exactly. You know? It doesn't matter whether you know what it's called or not. If you're good at it, and you, the music either moves or it doesn't, I guess. Well, it, 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 right. It either it either makes magic or it doesn't make magic. And if you've got even a simple melody with simple lyrics uh, and a catchy, a catchy melody, and there's something about it that makes magic, it doesn't need a lot of production because I, I've heard uh, a lot of artists do that were very, very, very good singers, very good artists, but they they tried to make magic out of a song that simply didn't have any magic. And they said, well, we can put this big production behind it and make magic. Well, no, you can't do that. It either has magic or it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I think, I think be better anything is simple. Right, less is more. Yep, yep. Less is more. Yeah, when you have too much production, uh, when you have too much production, then you know some somebody's trying to hide something. You know what I mean? Well, I agree. And and and, and you're a writer, and you'll appreciate this. Um, but one of my favorite quotes by Ernest Hemingway uh, in writing, he said, 
if you put one extra word in a sentence that doesn't absolutely have to be there, you ruin it. Yes. It clutters up the concept. It does. It yeah. gets in the way. Yeah. Uh, the clear ideas have less words. Right. Yeah. So Exactly. And he was a master of honing it down to as little as possible. Yeah. To me, better authors are, or the superior authors use less words to, to say more. And I'm sure exactly. that's with music, you know, music, musicians, it, you have core music and that's it. And hey, if it's got the rhythm, it's got the melody, what more do you need? You don't need any more. Absolutely. What you don't want to do is take something that has that and ruin it with too much production. And you would know. Because it's just, yeah, just enough, just enough to get it across. And I think that's you know? where the, your artistic and judgment comes in. You know, when you cross that line. And so you would know it by gut feeling that this is where it stops, right? Right, right. And, and some songs will lend themselves to a little more production. Some songs, um, and I'll use uh, uh, Ray Charles as an example. Uh, Tom Dowd uh, was involved with a lot of, his, just brilliant man, was re involved in a lot of those recordings, but they knew when to to add strings or to keep things basic or whatever. And it doesn't mean you can't do it. Of course you can do it, but it's it it's it's not gonna make or break the song, but some songs lend themselves to that little bit more icing on the cake, so to speak. Absolutely. And it and it works. And 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 the 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 job of a great producer is to know Number one, does it need any? And if it does, exactly how much does it need before I put too much on it? There you go. There you go. And that's that's the producer's job. Yeah. Excellent. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. You know, when you talk about jukebox and how, how a quarter will get you to play six songs, and I understand what you're saying, I think that tells how old we are, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because what is it now? I'm, I don't even know what it costs, but now they have the internet jukeboxes that can find anything that's on the web uh, and search it. And the last time I looked, it was about $1 a song, but uh, it could be more than that. Now, I don't know. I don't have a clue. But you know what? The internet jukebox doesn't have a diner behind it. You can eat some fries and burgers with it. No, it doesn't. And, and you need that. And you, you you need to smell that that cooking oil that's been burned <laughs> a little too much and used a little too much and, you know, recycled when it shouldn't be. That it lends to the, to the, the essence of, yeah. of the whole thing. The experience. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you, you've performed with some uh, well-known people. Uh, Bo Diddley, what was he like? The, the guy, the, Bo, Bo Diddley was one of my, I worked with him three times. 
And the first time we were his band, we opened the show and my band was, was Bo's band. And we did a sound check and it's okay. We need to rehearse. And we played for about two minutes and, and Bo just waved his hands to stop. And I thought we'd, we'd done something wrong. And he said, that's enough. You'll do. He wanted to do everything totally spontaneous, totally. And a lot of it made up on the spot. And he wanted to keep it rough, real and raw. And uh, I remember when, uh, when the, a, a deli tray came in the dressing room, we said something like, well, we'll, we'll get out of here and let you eat. And he said, no, no, no. We're all the band. If we don't eat, the beat get weak. <laughs> that sounds and, like but, but, but guys like, like Bo Diddley and John Lee Hooker are, I've, I spent time with George Jones, the great country music. Oh, yeah. He's cut from the same mold and leave on him. These guys are from the earth. They're, they're country guys that have, that have, that have grown up. Um, most of them in the South and they, they come from the earth and they keep that, uh, pureness in that, uh, honesty, you know, which is one of the things that makes, I think, makes them stars, you know, makes their music uh, relate to so many people. But that, to me, Ernest Tubb was another one like that. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the old timers. And when you're around them, if you're doing a show, you say, I'm going to stick to this guy like glue because I'm going to learn something. This is an education. I, I remember sitting with, with John Lee Hooker in Greensboro, and I want, there weren't a lot of people in the audience. There were maybe maybe 85 or 90 people, which is wasn't a big crowd for him, needless to say. And he looked at me and, and he said, uh, he said, there ain't many folks here, is there? And I said, well, no, Mr. Hooker, it's not a real big crowd. And he said, well, it, it's like this. Those that's here wants to be, and those that ain't, they missed it. Absolutely. That's a, a great philosophy. Yes. And not only that, that it's a it, professional attitude. Oh, and he got up and, and it, you know, it was like he had the people jumping up and down, like in the, in the scene in the Blues Brothers movie, where they're at the Triple Rock Church with James Brown. I mean, he, his, he had the crowd worked up emotionally that much. Yeah, you know, it was that. It was all that, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it it you just do what you do and and let the music talk for you. Let it, you know. That's and it's whether it's five or five thousand people. Exactly. You, you just do it. Yeah, I think it was a general. Either, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say either you love what you do or you don't. Yes. You know. Yes. I think it was and we have to love it to, to, to do this as long as we've done it. Some of us, you know, we, we have to be passionate about it. Not only because that, it's a, not only that you're successful. Well, and, and success a lot of times is a roller coaster. It goes up and then it'll dip down and it goes up. And, you know, it's not like everybody's on top all of the time. And, and that's part of it. And so when it's not, you say, well, um, uh, like I tried to do during the pandemic, what can I do to, to better my music and better myself? And, uh, I wrote songs, I practiced guitar and luckily 
um, I signed with a new record label called Bad Juju, and they will release uh, the songs that uh, Durwood and Tony and I recorded in August. And in the meantime, Juke Joint Jimmy's has been licensed to KHP, Keith Houston Productions, uh, in a beach music compilation. And I think the name of it is This Way to the Beach. I'm not sure. But Keith and I grew up together. Um, his, his brother's Band of Oz. Yeah, Band of Oz. And I'm real proud to say uh, I, I started uh, playing guitar when I was 11, but I started teaching guitar when I was 12. And Keith was my first student. He was 10 and I was 12. <laughs> and uh, he's done extremely well for himself. And, and that makes me very proud, you know, yes. that I could just, you know, even have just a little bit of something to do with that. Yeah. But he's a great, he's not only a great musician, but he's a great producer. He's got a good ear and uh, just a great person and he knows are, his music. Yeah, you guys both from Eastern North Carolina? We're both from the same town, Grifton, North Carolina, which is, you know, kind of uh, in, in the middle of, of nowhere. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's a little bump in the road between Kinston and Greenville. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's amazing how those that bump in the road produce so many uh, talented people. You, know, you and I both know in beach music community, how many are really just your average North Carolinians from, you know, Farmville, kind of a small, quiet town. And yet they're great. Right. Well, and, and let's see. Uh, uh, Tony Davis is from Fremont. Durwood's from Princeton, North Carolina. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, uh, we were we were fortunate enough to, to um, have families that nurtured the, the talent and encouraged it. And, uh, and that's a very, that's a real blessing Absolutely. right there to have parents that, that nurture something like that. Well, I appreciate those parents because of what they did. And based on what you said, they gave you support to the point that you guys are musicians that bring so much joy to people like me who go around listening to all these beach music bands and enjoy it so much. Well, um, my dad loved, was just, he was a, a, just a total musician. He, uh, he played jazz guitar growing up. Um, when I was young, very young, he was a jazz guitarist. He later picked up the violin, uh, which he played as a small child and started playing, uh, bluegrass music and but while he did that he was also in the ecu symphony uh and and which is pretty cool uh, associated press ran a story about him doing that but it's when i was 17 he took me to the atlanta pop festival in in byron georgia at the middle georgia speedway to see Jimi hendrix how about that yeah. how was that experience it was incredible it, it was it was it was a beyond incredible experience uh and it was it was funny. He'd seen so many incredible musicians come and go, and his very words were, "We've got to go see him because a light that bright doesn't burn very long." And two and a half months later, he was dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, but he was amazing. He was all that. You know, it was no hype. He was all that. But we also saw the the original. Allman Brothers band line up with with Dwayne and uh, 
the, oh, the Chambers brothers stole the show. But there were so many great acts there, B.B. King. It was just a just a, a wonderful time for music, you know. Yes. Yeah, does it make you wonder whether uh, such quality exists today? Uh, yes, it does. It makes you. It, it seems as though the 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 most of the bands that a lot of people like or. Um, kind of throwback bands that uh, I, I'll, I will use the black crows as an example. Of course, they, they, they're, they've been around a long time now and they'll break up and get back together, whatever, but they are influenced by bands like the almond brothers band bands, like little feet band, you know, they draw their influence from the bands that, that I saw when I was young and, uh, um, uh, it's funny. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie yesterday uh, where this guy's in a bicycle accident. And when he comes to, no one in the world has ever heard of the Beatles. And he, he remembers all of the songs and he starts playing them. And people think that <laughs> he wrote these songs, you know, that they're his songs. And he goes to Google and he Googles Beatle. And the only thing that come up it comes up as insects. And then it's really funny. He Googles Oasis, which was a band that was a total Beatles knockoff and it, Oasis. And it, and it says uh, a place in the desert yeah. because they couldn't exist as a band without the Beatles. You right. Know? Sounds like but, one of those episodes from Twilight Zone. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's a great movie. I, I do recommend it to, 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 any music lover. It's just, just a wonderful movie. It's good fun. Yeah, I like that angle. Uh, it's good angle. And it, and it tells you just how much uh, they influenced, the Beatles influenced music in the world. But, you know, let's talk about early R&B and beach music. If you listen to their first two or three albums, they covered songs uh, that were very, very popular uh, at the beach, at North Myrtle Beach. Uh, you really got a hold on me. They covered uh, Anna. They, they covered these great songs and they did a really good job because a lot of these songs were done by girl bands and they had the harmonies to do it as a guy band. And so they drew their influence. Uh, I think John Lennon said his favorite singer of all time was Benny King. Oh yeah. And and and, the, and I can't argue with him, and and of course Smokey Robinson was a huge influence, and 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 uh, you'll hear those songs. We well we heard some this past Sunday uh, in Smithfield. We heard uh, uh, Durwood and and uh, Tony along with with Jackie Gore do some of those early Marvin Gaye songs and some of those just great great songs. They yeah. they they stay around because they're great. You know, yeah, I don't know what I did right, but I was born at the right time to write that wonderful music genre for the last 30, 40 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, and, and it's it's like um, um, I was talking to, to, to Derwood Martin about when in 1965, the, the Embers opened for the Rolling Stones at, at Dorton Arena. And uh, of course, the, 
I love the Stones, you know, and, and their records were uh, were really good. The, their early records were very rough, which I liked, and harkened back to their, their blues and R&B influences. But live, they were almost like a garage band live. It, it, it's just uh, – and Durwood was saying that Mick and Keith came backstage, and they weren't, you know, particularly friendly or anything. And I'm thinking, well – you wouldn't think this because you're modest, but the fact was they heard they heard the Embers play these songs that they loved, and they heard them play them better than they played them. You know, and and, and it's it's true because I know how good they were back then. And and don't get me wrong, I do love the Stones. Who doesn't? Uh, but if you listen to any of their live recordings uh, before 1969, they're rough. They're very 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 rough. They're they're pulling it together. They're getting it together. It's a live work in progress. Their records are outstanding, but they couldn't live up to that live until uh, around late 69 or 70. And then it started coming around for them live. Yeah. I mean, I know what you mean. The cover band's actually doing better than the uh, original bands. There's like, you've heard of uh, Cat, Cat Five, the new group that. Yes. Yeah. Cat yes. Five. Um, and the lead singer, I can't remember his name now, I should know, but he does better version of uh, Journey's uh, Don't Stop Believing better than uh, Steve, uh, what's his name? The original. Yeah, guy. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Quality. And, well, and, it, it, it's, uh, and, and, and what's cool, though, is, is, is that was a song uh, uh, that was so good that it can be redone now and appreciated because it was a good song to start with. Absolutely. If you don't have a good song to start with, you, you, you've got nothing. Absolutely. Speaking you know, of Beatles. It was a well-written song. It, it's a, it was a well-done song. And uh, they, Journey is an example of a band that, yes, they did have a lot of production, but the music and the songs lent themselves to that and to use it. Don't overuse it, but use it and, and make a big production because – that made it happen. Phil Spector was a master at that with his wall of sound, uh, you know, to, to, to put this big sound, but he knew when to stop. He knew yeah. how to just make it, take it far enough. It's yeah. a gift. And, and a gift that he probably it's had, a, right? It, it's a gift and, and it's in the ear mm -hmm. and it's also in the heart. You, you feel it, you know, you, you, you listen to, you love it and you, you nurture the song. You don't want to overly nurture it. You just want it to be the best it can be. Yeah. And sometimes that means leaving it alone. Sometimes that means adding a little something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that Phil Spector, uh, how his life ended. But while he was doing his job, I mean, he was one of the masters. He was one of the masters. And um, I do know that uh, after the Beatles... Uh, he was the only producer John Lennon would work with, you know, and they could have worked with anyone they wanted to, but he wanted Phil Spector, you know, and I mean, he certainly made his mark from uh, the early Ronette stuff to the Beach Boys to all the uh, or Righteous Brothers. Uh, I don't know if he was involved in the Beach Boys, but I know he was involved in the Righteous Brothers. So many of the stuff that was recorded uh, with the Wrecking Crew out in L.A., that was that was you know, yeah, Spector um, did work with Beach Boys uh, after a couple of albums that they did. They did on their own, but he 
they did a turn to Spectre in this uh, studio. Right, right. And, 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 and I didn't realize for a long time uh, that they pretty much kept Brian Wilson, Wilson in the studio creating and Glenn Campbell filled his spot live yeah. when they toured. Yeah. And what, what a talent what my, Wilson was too. Wow. Oh, he's brilliant. One of, one of my big heroes, Leon Russell, was a member of the Wrecking Crew. And he, he obviously, he, he, he stuck to Brian Wilson, you know, uh, but, but he knew, you know, this guy's a genius. I'm going to learn something. I'm going to stick to him. And of course, that's what you do. And you, and you would also get a feel for what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it done. Yeah. I mean, when you're Brian Wilson, you got all these songs in your head. You just got to pull them out. You just got to get gotta it pull out. You got to pull them out. You know, that exactly. is composed too. And we'll get to that. But before we do that, let's, we're talking about Beatles, right? So tell us about right. the story about the Abbey Rose. Um, well, because of the Beatles and because of the fame of that studio, I always wanted to go there. And um, my wife and I were in London, I think it was back in 2007 uh, or 2008. And I wanted to go by the studio and just get a, 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 an estimate on paper or something that had their their letterhead on it as my as my souvenir. And we arrived, and I asked for the right person in the mastering department. I'd already been online and checked it out, you know. And uh, she took me upstairs and said, "I want you to introduce you to this young engineer." And I'm thinking, "Wow, this is really cool," because you don't they don't allow the public in there. If you, you don't have business, you don't get in. And then it, it turned out that uh, they had brought him in. He was on the clock and someone had sent way files for him to master. And there were glitches in those way files. So we had absolutely no work to do. And he was on the clock. And so she said, if you want your project done, we can do it for you right now at this price and she gave me this incredible rock bottom price <laughs> and 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 I did it and I came back two more times and they honored that that price because you know it was uh they knew I didn't have a big budget that didn't you know but uh the work was impeccable I had uh over 50 songs remastered there and uh it turns out that the engineer was a young man named Christian Wright. And a few years after that, he mastered the soundtrack for the, the movie Gravity and won an Academy Award for that. They do a lot of soundtrack mastering there. So, uh, so you were not disappointed with their production? Oh, no, not at all. And after the first time, we got to spend about a half hour down in, in Studio 2, which is where the Beatles did most of the recording. And just walking around yeah. in there was, oh man, you know, that was, that was hallowed ground to me. Absolutely. You feel yeah. that yellow submarine vibe. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, they had a, a room they called the, the reverb room and it was underneath the stairs and it was just a room. They didn't have any, when the Beatles recorded, they had no reverberation. They had no plate reverb no, and digital didn't exist. So if you wanted reverb, you had to get the echo out of that room. But there was also a, a pipe in that room. And 
Ringo had, had was banging on that pipe in Yellow Submarine, and you hear it, you know, when it <laughs> sounds like they're down in the sub, and you hear it, you know, and that you had to create those sounds with imagination back then. Oh yeah, because you couldn't just you couldn't just pull up uh, on a computer, give me blah 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 sound, and it'd be there. Yeah. You had to make it. You had to create it. And we will be right back after this important message. Musician, you made that. What is that word? Uh, religious pilgrimage to it was, exactly, and 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 then eating and, and then eating in the cafeteria, which is food was wonderful. And 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 but I found out that a good bit of Dark's Out of the Moon was recorded in the cafeteria because David Gilmore liked the sound in there. How about that? So they would go in in the evenings and record in the cafeteria. So there, there again, it's, it's just making something happen, yeah. you know, uh, uh, it, it's just so many cool stories and, and all great recording studios have those, uh, muscle shoals, sun records, of course. I mean, they all have these magical, um, I recorded when I was with RCA in the early eighties, I recorded at their big studio in Nashville and, um, and that was that was quite an experience because it was a huge room. It was kind of like Studio One at Abbey Road. You could put a an entire symphony in there. And and here we were. We were at that time a four piece band, and we were in one little corner, mm-hmm. and and we were recording. But it was it was quite an experience. Absolutely. And um, so I, I can honestly say that uh, one of the some of the vinyl that I had then was mastered by. Uh, the same guy that, that that mastered some of Elvis's final, and then I had some songs mastered in the exact same mastering suite as, as the Beatles stuff, you oh, know, okay. which is really cool. And in the big scheme of things, it doesn't get any bigger than Elvis and the Beatles, you know. Well, that's absolutely right, and they would say that themselves. If they, they would say that themselves, and the Beatles were huge Elvis Presley yes. fans, huge. Yes, still contemporary. I mean, you know, that that was their idol, yep. you know. Yeah, they're pretty uh, much their contemporaries in the sixties. Um, well, ex- exactly. They, but they, they had this incredible respect for Elvis and and Buddy Holly and the pioneers of rock and roll because those were the guys that they learned from by listening to the records. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, when when George Harrison was fifteen, he did his audition with John Lennon and Paul McCartney on the top open deck of a double-decker bus. <laughs> they were outside, and, and the, the song that he played was Arthur Smith's Guitar Boogie. Hmm. And, and, of course, Arthur Smith Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina. So okay. many, so many uh, great recordings have been made there. So many uh, famous beach music recordings were made oh, at yeah. Arthur Smith Studios. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's like everything goes around in this big circle, yeah. but somewhere, somewhere it connects. 
Oh yeah. yeah. Somewhere it connects. I know a lot of musicians probably have recorded in Nashville and also in Charlotte and other uh, locations in the Southeast, but not many of you can say that you actually recorded at Abbey, Abbey Roads. Well, and I didn't record there, but I mastered there. Yeah. And, and I was able to go into the, to two of the recording studios, but it was, it was an, an incredible experience. And I will say this, I'm, I'll, I'll brag on, on Keith Houston. Some of the tracks that uh, he had, recorded and or mastered the first time um the engineer said man whoever did this was really good and you know Keith's so modest he didn't care about that stuff you know but but i i told him and and he said wow that's cool you know but but it is cool that's a big deal yeah you know for people that are not in the beach music community uh who are listening from all over the world tell us give us some tell us something about keith so that people will understand who he is. Well, he is a, a gifted musician with a great ear and incredibly modest. I didn't know until we were we were doing some recording together. He was producing me. He had graduated second in his class. I think it was second uh, in a huge class, and he had a scholarship to East Carolina University. I do believe for physics. And, and, and he went for, we were on the quarter system then. And after one quarter, he decided this isn't what I want to do. I, I want to devote full time to the band of Oz. How about that? Tell yeah. us about band so, of Oz for people who may not know. So, well, um, because I went into, uh, in 1975, uh, I was a co-founder of a band called super Grit cowboy band. And I kind of slipped into that, genre of outlaw country and and i was totally uh immersed in the the it was the austin's texas sound and it was waylon jennings it was willie nelson uh and, and i was so immersed in that in from 75 until the mid to late 80s that i i kind of really lost touch with what was going on in the beach music world. I mean, I knew it was going and I would see, and I saw guys that, that I knew on the road, we would cross paths, but it was, it, 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 it kind of, I guess you'd say fell off my radar for a short while. Uh, but you know, like that circle, uh, I, it, it all came back into the circle there, uh, at a certain time. But, uh, I can honestly say Keith is, has been a, an incredibly successful band leader. Uh, a, a, always a very solid musician. He's played bass on some of my tracks, some of my blues tracks. Um, and he's a good engineer and a good producer. And uh, and he's won he's won so many Cami Awards, Beach Music Awards. Uh, I think he's taken himself out of the running for a lot of them because he's won so many. You know, it's it's. He's not one of these guys that needs to pat his ego. How about yeah, that? He, he just—he's he, about the music, not the not the ego. That's a solid man. Yeah. I appreciate that kind of characteristic. Me too. Me too. He's a, he's a lifelong friend, and and I'm very proud to call him my friend. I think you're and, both lucky to have each other. Well, um, we we enjoy working together when that time comes, and I was very proud that um, a song from this newest project with. Uh, uh, Martin Davis band, uh, Tony and Durwood, that's on Bad Juju, the, the, the hit song, Juke Join Jimmy's, was licensed to KHP. So 
Keith was able to put it out on a compilation and he wanted it. And I was just pleased that he wanted it. And that was, that's, it's all good. You know, it's all good. It, we, we, we don't just, uh, uh, coexist. Sometimes we, we, we actually even work together for, to make all the tides rise. And that's a cool thing. Keep it coming, man. Keep it coming. Yeah. That's a like, really good thing. What was it like to work with REM? I did a show with them at Meredith College. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in Raleigh, I had Carolina. seen, yeah, in Raleigh, North Carolina, I had seen them open for the police in 1983 when the police were on the synchronicity tour. Uh-huh. And uh, the police were phenomenal. And, and REM was still in the, I think we we did the show with them in 85. And in that two-year period, they got their live show together much, much better. Um, when they were with the police, I wasn't really all that impressed with them. But obviously, they, had to, they were doing something right. And uh, I do believe that uh, another North Carolina uh, native, uh, Don Dixon, was involved with them. And Don's a, a really great guy really good musician and a good producer he he knew how to 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 get the best out of them and uh and they became a a a super group uh in the uh mid to to later 80s you know and their songs songs still get get played quite a bit on the radio you know so it was a good I, i can tell you this we were outside and it was awfully hot that day but it was a concert. It was one of those concerts for uh, extended for Live Aid when when there was the famine in Africa and they did the uh, um, the Live Aid shows. This was an extension of that. This was a, a charity show. Very and, because and, and and it was fun. We all had fun. We we were sweating bullets out there, but but we had fun, you know. Yeah. What's your lasting memory of uh, playing uh, opening for REM? For I'm sorry. What was your lasting memory playing with REM? Um, you know, '85's a while back, <laughs> so uh, I I I kind of don't remember the live show, but some of it did get recorded and put on YouTube. So I would I I went back and watched it. Uh, I, I hung around for a little bit, but it was so uh, I was living in Raleigh at the time. It was so blazingly hot that I didn't stay around for the whole show. I had to get out of that heat. Gotcha. I understand. You uh, can't get hot in North Carolina, especially in the summer months. Oh yeah. And the humidity. I mean, yeah. that's what what gets you. You know. It's we both know about that. Yes, we do. Let's talk about yes, North Carolina a little bit and uh, your background. So uh, you say you started your musical career when you were 11 years old, right? After hearing uh, yes. and rock uh, After, the British invasion. The, well, the, yeah, the, the, our, my dad wanted me to play guitar, but he didn't push me. And for my 11th birthday on February 28, 1964, they gave me a copy of Meet the Beatles. And so after I'd listened to that, a couple of times I came to him and I said, I'm ready for those guitar lessons. Wait a minute. You were born so in 64. I was, no, I was born. No, I was born in, in 53. In 64, I was, I was 11. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was 11. And, and it was a particularly 
hot summer, the summer of 64. And I remember sitting inside so in practicing eight hours a day, you know, just relentlessly practicing. And of course, you know, it, it's wax on, wax off. It, the, the more time and effort you put into something, the faster you get to where you want to be only to find out that you're not anywhere near where you want to be. So it's a never ending, you know, it never stops. You get to another plateau, you go, Oh man, it's a long way to that next one. But you know, you just keep working. It, it's never ending, never stops. Well, tell us about the little town you were born in. What was it like? Well, I remember it being a town of, of, of fewer than a thousand people. And uh, my dad worked at DuPont, and it was located between Grifton and Kinston. The plant was, the factory. And back then, it employed over 4,000 people. And uh, a lot of people who lived in Grifton at the time were DuPont employees. A lot of those people. As a matter of fact, uh, Keith Houston's father, uh, Ray Houston, worked at DuPont. And he and my dad knew each other from from working there together. And a lot of people did. But it was a, it was a small town and it was a, a great place to grow up. You know, small towns in in, in North Eastern North Carolina or, or anywhere in, in you know, are, are good or are, are really great places to grow up. And, and you look back at a lot of the these movies uh, that that are uh intended to be nostalgic and you realize, man, I, I grew up, I, I did this, you know, this is, was what I did when I was growing up. This is how it was. You know, we did all those smart things like running along behind the DDT mosquito spray trucks, you know, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done that myself. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, so you grew up in that uh, County, I guess. What County was that? That was that was Pitt County. And then in 1968, uh, when I was getting ready to start the, the 10th grade, we moved to Kinston, which was 11 miles okay. away. And uh, uh, I already knew a lot of people there. And of course, be, being a musician enables you to hook up with a lot of people quickly and, and, and sure. tie up with other musicians. Sure. And uh, so it was it, it, it was all good. It was all good. Yeah, it is kind of nice to, in retrospect, realize that your childhood was really better than you may have thought. Especially oh, when you think about it now. Especially, especially now. And and back then, um, the first concert that I ever attended, my dad took me to see Ray Charles and Billy Preston was playing Hammond B3 with Ray Charles. That's wow. the first concert I ever saw. And then... He was playing the following night in Raleigh, and that was a pickup date. And so we we went. We, we saw him two nights in a row. And then I think uh, the next concert after that was uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, James Brown and James Brown Orchestra and the Fabulous Flames. I was 14 then, and then I remember seeing bands like uh, Mitch Ryder uh, with Ike and Tina Turner at, at East Carolina, and there were just so many great bands that came through there. And and the summer, of, I think it was summer of 69, seeing uh, Junior Walker and the All-Stars 
at the Kinston National Guard Armory playing What Does It Take to Win Your Love when it was the top five song at the time. Because back in those days, just because you had a hit song didn't mean you canceled all the little venues and just played big venues. You honored your commitments. Yeah. And that's how it was. Yeah. You did the circuit. You did the circuit. You know, and of course that's that's changed these days. That's not that way now. Right. But the all all those towns that had National Guard armies, there was a circuit of great bands that came through and, and played those, the Embers being one of them, uh Billy Scott and the Georgia Prophets. Uh, and then you get the you you get you know national bands like uh, uh, the Shirelles or Junior Walker and the All Stars and and it was just uh, a really really cool time. We're talking seriously good music. Oh yeah, you know I mean it's serious. It's good as it gets. It, it's as good as it gets. Yeah, and and, and you know and and the thing is, if you were to ask Paul McCartney that same question, he would tell you that's as good as it gets. That's as good as the music gets. Good to know, because I always wonder, am I biased because I lived through it? Or is it factually the best we've had? It's the best we've had. I agree, Bill. It's the best we've had. I agree. And we we still, you know, we occasionally get sniglets of it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know. We we wanted uh, Joint Jimmy's to be a sniglet of that. Absolutely, I heard it. And, I heard it the other day. It was and, very good. And when after we played it the other day, uh, an older woman came up to me in Smithfield, and she took both of my hands and she told me how much she enjoyed that song. And I realized she was old enough to remember when when Jimmy Reed songs and songs like that were being played on the jukebox and she was dancing to those songs. And that meant so much to me. You know, I said, wow, you know, she knows she's yeah. lived it. She's been there. Yeah. And for yeah. the four minutes or so, she was back to 18 years. She old. was back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's the cool thing about music. It, it, it takes you back in time or takes you to a, a different place or takes you to a city where you heard a song or a place or a beach or wherever, something special. Your first love. Yeah. That's, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we will be right back after this important message. And we're back. Did you join Jim? Yeah, back then, I mean, those performers actually put on a lot of mileage just on the car and, and on the body. It was a, it was yes, they did. Probably a I remember uh, Atlantic Beach, North Carolina, the pavilion at Atlantic Beach was one of those places that was on the circuit. And I remember on a Sunday afternoon uh, walking over. Uh, and it was it, the Sunday afternoons were free. There was no cover charge to get in and they would open it up all the way around, but they would make their money on the bar. And, uh, I remember hearing Jackie Wilson and, and hearing him do, uh, higher and higher. Oh, yeah. And, and then, and then they, and then the horn section breaks into that great horn line as he walks off the stage, you know, I, and, I mean, it, it's, 
it, it just still makes the hair stand up on my arms when I think about it. I hear you, man. I mean, I it's good to know that my feelings were con- is being confirmed by a professional with good judgment as yourself that we indeed our generation had the best true music without auto box where singers yes, actually we did. knew how to sing. They knew how to sing. There was no pitch correct. There was no, uh, you know, you could, you could do a, a second take on it. You could, you know, but so far as is recording it and putting it into a machine and, and or correcting the tempo or whatever. No, that didn't exist. And there weren't even click tracks. You know, you, you could either play on time or you couldn't. Yeah. And if you couldn't, you didn't last very long in the studio. That's right. That's right. I mean, we're of the generation, not only did the singers know how to actually sing, but they also were musicians. They actually knew how to play instruments. Exactly. Um, but to and me, that's artists, not these that, it, singers of today's, but someone like you. Well, everybody likes to be thought of that way. And, and of course, I like it. All musicians like to be thought of as, as being an artist. And uh, but there was a level of professionalism and uh, artist artistmanship or artisanship that was necessary just to survive, to continue back then. It, you know, either either you had it and continued to develop it or you fell by the way. Yeah. It was just that simple. You know, you, you had no choice. So uh, there again, there was a lot of the wax on, wax off came from just doing relentless gigging, just playing on the road so many days in a row or whatever. You know, I think, that's. I think Charles Darwin, the, we call that Charles Darwin, Darwinism. You know, you either get better and survive or you get consumed. Exactly. That's pretty much how it was. And, and it's, it, it's like even, uh, I will go back and, and, and cite, use the Beatles as an example. When they were doing five sets a night in Hamburg, Germany, before anybody knew who they were. When you play that much, you get tight. You, you know, you learn how, and they were doing the, the songs that were popular and popular. And they later recorded a lot of those songs like You Really Got a Hold on Me and, and, and Anna. And those, you know, they, they, and it was great. You know, they did great versions. And not only that, but a lot of the guys that had written those songs, a lot of the art of the authors of those songs, uh, they had been robbed of royalties. And the, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were both adamant about seeing that the people who wrote these songs received their royalties. The, you know, they got the dues they should get. And, and that's, and that's, of course, in a perfect world, it would have always been that way, but it's not a perfect world. Yeah. Hopefully it's getting better. Hopefully. Uh, uh, Yes. Yeah. All right. So you, uh, your last name is Lyle and that's not a common name. In fact, you're the first Lyle I've ever met. So give us some history on your, uh, your name there, buddy. Well, if, if you're from Rowan County, uh, around Salisbury or Granite Quarry, there are more Lyrleys in the phone book than Smiths or Jones. Really? That's the oh, yeah, but that's the only place in the world. That's about an it's hour a, from Charlotte for people who may not know. Yeah, it's between it, it's uh, it's uh, between Greensboro and Charlotte on I eighty five. Yep, I've passed um, it many times. 
Yeah, yeah. And it, it's a it's a German name. And uh, uh, the Lyrleys landed in Philadelphia and uh, uh, from Germany. And I think the, the name was Lay or Lay or something. And they, of course, they changed it into something that's is equally awkward and hard to spell and hard to pronounce, but it, it stuck. And they uh, migrated to, to that particular part of the state. And as well as did a lot of other German immigrants, there are a lot of German immigrants, you can tell by the name, uh, in that part of the Piedmont. Uh, um, Earnhardt is certainly one, you know, that's a well-known name, uh, but there are quite a few. And I'm sure that one reason for, because a lot of people that were, spoke the language, they could communicate as they were learning to speak English, you know? So, I mean, there's always a reason. Yes. You know, there's a reason why things happen. Yeah. Yeah. In Philadelphia, what do you think about the Philadelphia sound in the seventies, man? It was, it was a, a great sound. Uh, there again, in the, in the mid seventies, I lost touch with a lot of between 74 and 75, I stayed so immersed in, in, in outlaw country and studied that country music as a whole uh, that I kind of lost touch with what was on the radio or what was popular or whatever. And it wasn't because I was turning my back on it or anything. It wasn't that because it was great music, but I was just totally submerged in something else. Well, I got you. Uh, so sometimes I, I, I learn a lot of that music after the fact. I learn it and go back, wow, I missed that first time around. Or I heard it, but I didn't appreciate it as much as I do now. Yeah, I got an example of that myself. There's a group called Westlife out of uh, Ireland. And mm -hmm. uh, I had no knowledge of it until 2002 when I went to Korea for three years. And that's where I discovered Westlife. And ever since then, yeah. one of my favorite boy, you know, boy uh, groups. Isn't that funny? Well, and yeah, well, it, 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 but it's you know, it's, I've been fortunate enough to to spend so much time in 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 Spain and some time in France, and and that happens, you know, um, and there'll be some really good music that will catch on over there. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, rockabilly music is huge. If, if Brian Setzer is going to tour, he's definitely going to spend a, a bunch of time in Europe and, and a lot of time in Spain because it just, it just works there. You know, people that's, really get it. Yeah. That's funny. It, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I guess sometimes you got to leave your own country to be appreciated. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, what, uh, what it was, what is it? It, it says in scripture, a prophet's never a prophet in his own land. Yeah, you you go somewhere else to, you know, where you, you, you take something and, 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 and it, it's like, um, the first time I, I did any touring in Spain and we were doing, you know, some of my songs mixed with muddy waters and stuff like that. And people just went nuts, yeah. you know? Yeah, they were hearing an American perform American music live. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of that, and before we get to that, let's back up a little bit. I want to—I still want to stay in North Carolina, and then we we'll get to your okay. uh, overseas there. But uh, so you ended up at ECU. What years were you there? I was there from seventy-one to seventy-five. Okay, and how and was it for you? It was—it was good. I uh, uh, 
after school, I worked at a music store. And um, I also played in two or three different bands over the over the course of the time. And uh, so I met all the musicians around and I met a lot of musicians that were that were traveling through. And, and it was a good time for, for live music as well, because I, I was able in 1971 on a senior trip to New York City, I got to Fillmore East. I, got to, I didn't care who was there. I just wanted to go. And, and it was Frank Zappa. So I saw Frank Zappa at Fillmore East, which was pretty, which was pretty darn cool. Yeah. Uh, but it, it Phil, uh, Bill Graham closed Fillmore because the prices were getting out of hand for the major acts. He would turn the house and he still, there was no profit margin in it. Well, at that time, people could still, big artists could play someplace like Minji's Coliseum in Greenville. And we got a lot of great acts through there. But now the acts, the, the really big acts have, have priced themselves into stadiums. Yeah, you know, Minji's, they, they, Minji's Coliseum, for people who are, who have no idea, is where the East Carolina plays basketball. It's called Minji's Coliseum. In Minji's Coliseum, and the and I was there. I, I didn't know this till uh, years later. Actually, I didn't know this till the last couple of years. I was there the night they opened it, the grand opening to the public, because that was the Ray Charles show that Billy Preston was on. They used Ray Charles as a grand opening. How about that? that? Yeah, so we just that sounds like a good grand opening to me. Absolutely, it's historical. Now you know, uh, East Carolina used to be called before it became East Carolina University in Greenville. You know that, right? It, it was yes, it was ECTC before exactly. it was East Carolina Teachers College. Exactly. It was a, it, it was a, it was a teachers college, exactly. and then it became East Carolina College, uh-huh. and then it became East Carolina University. It just, a- just worked its way up the ladder. Exactly. It's a long yeah. way of getting to my point, which is that East Carolina University, uh, which is located in Greenville, North Carolina, has very strong music department and is also yes. known as the business department. Now, were you part of the music uh, school there? No, I was an English major, but uh, I did I did a few basic music courses there and I would go to the music building sometimes just to go to a practice room and practice piano and just, it was a a way to keep my, try to keep and improve what few keyboard skills I had uh, and get it, maybe get an idea for a song or something. Uh, But it does have a very, very strong music department. And at that time, if they didn't have the best, they had one of the best percussion departments in the, in the entire world. And so a lot of really good percussionists uh, were there at that time and, and, and are still there. So it's, and they had a, a very strong uh, uh, art department and a strong English department and a strong business department. Yeah. So um, I guess what I'm getting at is you pretty much taught yourself the guitar and you master that. Uh, did you have, did you take any music theory and all these other classes to become more theoretical, uh, well, theoretically knowledgeable? Well, I, I've never mastered it. You never mastered it. I'm still a student, Bob, but I actually didn't know much theory until I took a couple of basic music courses at ECU, and it taught me some really, really, really simple basic theory, which was a revelation for me because I'd been doing it 
all along, I knew what it was, but I didn't know what to really call it. And, you know, and, and better able to communicate with other musicians if you didn't know each other, but you know, the, the little bit of theory would help it become more of a universal language to just to get guys together that had never played a certain song and say, okay, this is one, four, five, you know, it's basically uh 12 bar progression, blues, rock and roll, whatever you, whatever, depending on the tempo, you know? Right. So you can get a, a guitar player from North Carolina and a guitar a player from Japan. And you guys can talk the same language. You can talk the same language. And, um, it's amazing if if you get um, a guitarist uh, from Japan and let's say a keyboard player from Europe, chances are those guys uh, are really honed in on roots American music. Um, the Ventures, for example, which is one of the great instrumental bands, people thought they just, you know, went away. No, they went to Japan and had a whole another incredible career in Japan and the, and they loved them. It's like uh, Link Ray went to Scandinavia with his, uh, with his power chord rumble sound from the fifties and they kept going. You know, they found a place where people still regarded that as, as magical and they went there and they kept performing. You think, uh, you know, America exports a lot of things, you know, blue jeans and everything else and music. You think that, that, um, that is still the case in terms of exporting music into the rest of the world? I think, I think that America's uh, most famous export is pop culture. Uh, for instance, everybody in Europe knows about Route 66 and that it's the, the holy grail of, 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 of uh, the pop culture highways. But there's, I guarantee you, uh, there, there are so many young kids in the United States that don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. Uh, I'll give you an example. When the Rolling Stones first came to the United States in 64 or late 63, I can't remember. But anyway, they uh, a guy put a, a microphone in front of Brian Jones and said, now that you're in, in America, what do you want to do? He said, I want to see Muddy Waters. And the reporter said, where is that? And Brian Jones says, don't you know who your own heroes are? Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's the case. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you don't, you know, yeah. but the, the, the pop culture uh, from Route 66 and the, and the beatnik writers to the early rhythm and blues to jazz that's a huge thing in Europe and all other parts of the world. I mean, that's a really, really big deal. How about, you know, how about today is, in, in, in the uh, tw uh, 21st century? Are we still influencing the world musically? Uh, who is that now? I'm sorry. In the 21st century that we're living in now, are we still influencing the world musically? We are, yes, but I, I think it's more from – the past we still because the roots music that great music from the 50s and 60s and early 70s is going to influence people worldwide as long as they're people worldwide because that music was that good 
That popular music was that strong. And the jazz from the 30s and 40s and 20s, it's going it, to, it, it's, it's not ever going to die out. But I think that music will continue to do it. I can't say that a lot of new, we, we tend to be sometimes a country of, of, of fads. What's popular now and now that's, you know, not popular anymore. What's the next new thing type of thing? And uh, Europe, I guess maybe because of the the classical culture there or whatever, for some reason anyway, uh, they have such a high regard for uh, the the classic the, the beach music R and B songs, the the you know the the uh, the Benny King songs, the 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 coasters, the, the Jimmy Reeds, the the uh, jazz, the Louis Armstrongs, the Billie Holidays, the Etta James, the, all that stuff. I mean, that's such a, a a strong thing there, and and that's it's 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 really cool. Um, that's probably why I was able to get a record deal in the Basque Country, uh, because I was a, a roots rock artist. Well, it goes on. Yeah. It goes on okay. exactly, and, and you know, all I was doing was kind of putting writing songs, but putting my spin on, on old sounds, you know, to the point of maybe it was almost, but not quite plagiarism. (laughs) This is the end of part one. We thank you for listening and invite you to tune in the next time for part two. Meanwhile, join our growing family by subscribing to our podcast.